This conference takes a little bit more of a positive tone, I believe. It deals with three virtues in particular that are necessary for the Christian. And these virtues are humility, mortification, and charity. I'd like to start off first by talking to you about humility. No one can please God without being humble. Uh, God cannot, God does not bear the proud. He has promised to hear the prayers of those who pray to him. But if a proud man prays to him, the Lord hears him not. These are the words of scripture. To the humble, on the contrary, God dispenses many graces. God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Humility is of two kinds. There is humility of affection and there is humility of will. Humility of affection consists in the conviction we have of our own wretchedness so that we can neither know nor do anything but what is evil. All that we have to do that is good comes from God. In the practice of humility, we must first put no confidence in our own strength, nor in our own resolutions. But we must always be filled with fear of ourselves and a diffidence. With fear and trembling, Scripture says, St. Paul, I believe, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. And St. Philip Neri says that he who does not fear is sure to fall. Secondly, we must not glory in things that belong to us, our natural abilities, our heroic actions, the nobility of our birth, our relatives and the like. It is well never to speak of our actions, except to point out where we have been wrong. And even then, it's better not to speak of ourselves at all, either for good or for bad. Because even when we blame ourselves, it is often motivated by vainglory, by making us think that we shall be praised, or at least that we will be considered humble by others. And this humility becomes false humility, actually pride. Thirdly, we should not be angry with ourselves if we have committed a fault. This is something most people don't understand. This would not be humility, but it would be pride. And it can even be a device of the devil to take away our confidence and make us leave off following a good life. When we fall, it's because we don't have God's help. Why do we not have God's help? Because we haven't asked for or have refused it in the past. We should necessarily expect to fall. So why be angry when we do fall? When we see that we have fallen, we should say with St. Catherine of Genoa, <clears throat> Lord, these are the fruits of my garden, my own garden. Let us then humble ourselves and rise up immediately from the fault that we have committed by acts of love, and contrition, 
resolving not to fall into the same fault again and trusting in the help of God. We have many wonderful women in Cleveland. They're very solicitous for the parish there. They're very solicitous for the priest. One dear lady makes my lunch every Sunday to take in the car with me to the airport. Well, one Sunday she forgot and she was beside herself. And she said, well, that will never happen again. And it hasn't happened again. She's been very prompt about it. But she shouldn't be upset with herself that she forgot we're all fallible. We all have inabilities, incapacities. We should resolve not to fall into the same sin and trust in the help of Almighty God. And if we do fall, we should get right back up and make that same resolution again. I can't help but to think about 25 years ago, we used to take the boys at boys camp about 60 miles west of here to a stable with about 70 horses. And that was one of the highlights of the boys experience at camp to go horseback riding. We weren't led by the reins by some uh, domineering individual. The boys were put on their horses. They wanted to run them. They could run them. Well, it was a hot day, and the horses didn't weren't looking forward to being out in the heat riding a bunch of kids. And so one horse had the boy, about 14 years of age, on the back of the horse. And the barn door it was only like 8 feet tall, 10 feet tall, maybe 10 feet probably. And so the horse knew that if the horse went into that barn, the kid was going to come rolling off its back. And that's exactly what the horse did. I was fearful that that kid would not get back up on the horse. But he did. He immediately pulled the horse out of the barn, got back on it, and controlled that horse. And that's the, that's the resolve that we have to have. If we fall, let us get back up. Let us resolve that it's not going to happen again. Fourthly, when we see others fall, we should not wonder at that. We should not condemn them in angry words. We should have compassion upon them. And we should thank God, not like the Pharisee. We should thank God that he has permitted us not to fall into those same sins. That he has kept his hand on us, his thumb on us, so to speak. Otherwise, if we act like the Pharisee, oh, thank you, God, I'm not like that guy. If we act like the Pharisees, God will punish us by permitting us to fall perhaps into the same sin. Perhaps even to a worse sin. You've been given tremendous graces, men, that no, that very few others have been given. We must always consider, our, fifthly, we must, all, we must always consider ourselves to be the greatest sinner in the world. Oh, you exaggerate, you may be thinking in your mind. We know that others have committed far worse sins than us, but have they been given the great graces and the many favors that we have been given? Have they been enlightened to the moral law as we have by our good parents, by our good schools, by our catechism? If we commit the same sin, we will be far more displeasing to God than those who have not knowledge of what they're doing. You've been blessed with the faith. 
and all that follows, there's much fruit in the faith. You don't even realize all the fruit in your garden, so to speak. You've been so blessed with the faith, there to guide you. St. Therese of the Child Jesus writes that we must not think we have made any progress in the way of perfection if we do not esteem ourselves as the worst of sinners, worse than anyone else, and the desire to be considered the worst of sinners. That takes a lot. We all like to be thought well of in front of others. We like it when others ramble off all of our successes and accomplishments. Humility of the will consists in being pleased when we are despised by others. Anyone who has deserved hell, in other words, committed a mortal sin, deserves to be trodden under the foot of the devils forever. And this is where I, during the women's conferences, I mentioned St. Joseph, that first Christmas night. The inn wasn't the only door he knocked on, but that he joyed every time he was refused. Jesus Christ desires that we should learn of him to be meek and humble of heart. We just celebrated the Feast of the Sacred Heart. We're about to celebrate its octave. Learn of me because I am meek and humble of heart. Many are humble in word only, but they're not humble in heart. They may say, I am the worst sinner of all. I deserve hell a thousand times. But when anyone reproves them or says a word that displeases them, they immediately take umbrage. They're offended. They won't speak to that person. We see it in our own parishes. We see it in our own parishes, conflicts, cliques in our schools. They take umbrage. They're like porcupines, which put out their bristles as soon as they are touched. We say that we're worse than all, and yet we cannot bear a single word of contradiction. St. Bernard says, He who is truly humble esteems himself good for nothing and desires to be considered good for nothing by others as well. If you wish to be truly humble when you receive an admonition from another, receive it well, receive it graciously, and thank the person who admonishes you. Certainly, you and I deserve much greater admonition than we receive. St. John Chrysostom says, when the just man is corrected, he is sorry for his error that he's committed. When the proud man is corrected, he is sorry that his error has been discovered by others his weakness, or his sin. The saints, when they were accused, even wrongly, they didn't justify themselves, except when to defend themselves is necessary to avoid giving scandal. Otherwise, they are silent and offer all to God. As our Lord says, lest you become like little children. In the Quest for Happiness book, when I don't know if it's ninth grade or 10th grade, uh, when we start discussing obedience to parents and the parents' faults and the parents' responsibilities to kids, we always discuss the kids' responsibility to the parents, but there's also responsibility to the kids. 
But one thing that it clearly states is that a child must overlook, must in silence and humility, overlook the faults of his parents, his or her parents. Kids aren't to be pointing out the faults of the parents. They're to overlook it and forgive. Yes, parents have faults. Yes, they may be short-tempered. Yes, they may be under tremendous pressures and things. Children are to overlook that. They're the uh, inferiors. The parents are the superiors. Secondly, when you receive any affront, suffer it patiently and increase your love towards a person that has treated you poorly. That's hard to do. It's hard even for traditional Catholics. Someone in church uh, insults you, takes your spot, squishes you into a pew, has their kid distracting you all during Mass and things. You have to accept these things with humility. This is the barometer, this accepting affronts patiently and trying to increase your love towards those who have corrected you. This is the barometer by which you may know whether a man is humble and holy. If one resents an injury, even though he can work miracles, that person is like a stuffed shirt. Father Balthazar Alvarez says that the time of humiliation is the time to gain great treasures of merit in heaven. You may gain more by peacefully suffering contempt than you could by fasting for 10 days on bread and water. Just by suffering the contempt of others. There are plenty who have contempt for you. Don't you think they had contempt for you when you refused to get your vaccine? Some of you may have refused, some of you may have gotten it. Don't you think they will have contempt for you if they see you uh, in a rosary procession? We have that all the time. We had it in Cleveland where some hired weirdos uh, by the university with megaphones in their hands came right up to us in our ears and started yelling while we were praying the rosary. We have it here in Cincinnati. Uh, you'll have it everywhere. Humiliations which we inflict on ourselves are good, but those which we accept from the hands of others are much more meritorious. Because in these there is less of self and more of God, his permissive will. Therefore, we know how to bear them the, when we know how to bear them, the merit is greater. What sort of a man is a Christian who will not or cannot bear to be despised by others for the sake of God? We must consider the contempt that our Lord suffered on the cross for sake of us. If we love Jesus Christ, not only should we not show resentment for injuries, but we should actually rejoice at seeing ourselves despised as our Lord was despised. The most despised of men, Handel's Messiah. I'd like to speak to you on mortification. Our Lord says, if any man will come after him, let him deny himself. Let him take up the cross. Let him follow me. 
This is all that we have to do to become a saint. The saint that each of us imagines we already are. The denying of oneself is the mortification of self-love. Some of you perhaps remember Brother Ralph. He was a resident of, Long, of uh, upstate New York. He came to Cincinnati, and that's where he died. But before he, di before he died, before he got really sick, he uh, renewed his vows. I don't know if it was 40 or 50 years of renewal. And he was laying in the sanctuary on the floor. And the servers took a funeral pall and put it over him. This was a symbol of the mortification that a brother must have, a religious must have to Almighty God. The denying of one's self is the mortification of self-love. If we wish to be saved, we have to conquer ourselves. The soul that allows itself to be guided by self-love is a most miserable soul, individual, Mortification is of two kinds. It's interior and exterior, or internal and external. By interior mortification, we have to study to conquer our passions, especially the predominant one. A person who does not overcome his predominant passion is in danger of being lost. Whereas he who overcomes will easily conquer all the other passions in his soul. Some, however, allow one vice to predominate themselves. And they think that they are good because they do not see in themselves vices which others have. It does not matter if you're a ship and you have one kind of a hole or another kind of a hole. You have one kind of a leak or leaks, and another ship has another kind of a leak. They're both going to sink to the bottom, says St. Cyril. We cannot say that I cannot abstain from vice. A resolute will conquers all. A resolute will conquers all with the help of God. When I was a kid, the, the saying was, the devil made me do it. Perhaps some of you remember that same thing back in the 70s and maybe 60s, maybe 80s, I don't know. The devil doesn't make you do anything. We do it to ourselves. By external mortifications, we mean those which have to do with conquering the sensual appetites. Worldly people look at a sister in the convent, a brother in the monastery, a priest or whatever, they say, what a waste of, what a waste of a life. What a way, he was so smart and he's wasting it in the seminary. She was so good and she's wasting it in the convent. They accuse the disciplined, they accuse the saints of cruelty to themselves when they do any sort of mortification. When they chastise their own bodies with penances and other disciplines. St. Bernard says, the worldly are in reality much more cruel to themselves, who condemn themselves to burn forever in the flames of hell for a short and miserable pleasure 
of this life. Others say that all forbidden pleasures should be denied to the body, but they despise external mortifications. And they say the interior mortifications is what is required, the mortification of the will. It is principally necessary to mortify the will, but the mortification of the flesh is also necessary. Because when the flesh is not mortified, it will be hard to be obedient to God. St. John of the Cross said that anyone who taught that external mortifications were not necessary ought not to be believed, even if that person performs miracles. Firstly, we must learn to mortify our eyes. The first arrows which wound the soul and often kill it enter through the eyes. The eyes given over to lustful temptation drag the souls to hell. This is the temptation we have to worry about, especially today. And what day and time ever before have our teenagers been able to look at pornography at the tip of their fingers with their phones, smartphones that the parents give to them? We've never had such ease to temptation in our lives, in, the, in, in, in generations. A certain pagan philosopher one day plucked out his eyes, his own eyes, because he wanted to be relieved from temptations of impurity. Some of the pagans had nobility in their religion. It is not lawful for us to pluck out our eyes, but we ought to make them blind, blind to temptation. And we do so by mortification. Otherwise, we will find it hard to keep ourselves chaste. Every time I go to the airport, how many people do I see? By the time I get to one airport, go to another airport, and go to another airport, probably a couple thousand. How many do you think, how many of them do you think are modestly dressed? Time and time again, the priests have said, don't look at that, don't look at that, don't look at that. St. Francis de Sales said, you must close the gates if you do not wish the enemy to enter into the citadel. We must abstain from looking at any object that may give us an occasion of temptation or to temptation, anything which is displeasing to Almighty God. The wooden statue you see there on the right, the epistle side, is St. Aloysius Gonzaga, given to us by one of the parishioners here, painted by one of the parishioners here, made to look very, very nice. St. Aloysius Gonzaga did not dare to even raise his eyes to look at his mother. When by chance our eyes light on some dangerous object, we must be careful not to fix them on that object. This is important, what I'm about to say. It is not so much the mere seeing, but inspecting and continuing to look at that is the cause of ruin of so many people, says St. Francis de Sales. It's not, not necessarily the seeing, but the inspecting 
and the leaving the eyes fixed upon that which is immodest, indecent, and pure. Let us then be very careful in mortifying our eyes, because many are now in hell who committed sins with the eyes. Secondly, and we all are guilty of this to a greater or lesser extent, I believe, we must mortify our tongue by abstaining from words of detraction, of abuse, of obscenity. You men, you married men, should never have to raise your voice to your wife. You should be able to, by kindness and encouragement, uh, get them to do what they need to do. And in pure words spoken in conversation, even in jest, may be a scandal to others and be the cause of a thousand sins arising from it. You know the story of St. Philip Neri when the woman came to confession, confessed the sins of detraction of another. St. Philip Neri told her for her penance to go to the market, get a chicken, pluck its feathers out on the way home, throw it in the pot. Okay, she did that, She came back, and then come back to confession to me. And when she came back to confession, he told her, go pick up all those feathers. She said, oh, I can't, Father, they're all over the place. And so are your words. So, are you, so is your unkindness, so are your accusations. All over the place, and you can't retract them, you can't collect them back. Sometimes a word of double meaning, said in a witty way, does more harm than openly impure words. Thirdly, dear gentlemen, we must mortify our taste. St. Andrew Avellini said that in order to begin to live a good Christian life, a man must begin by... I have fortification of his palate. I think I misspelled that on the typewriter. I have... It should be mortification of his palate, not strengthen it, but to, to, to uh, discipline it. Then we must begin by a mortification of the palate. St. Francis de Sales says something very beautiful and very true and very full of meaning. We must eat to live, not live to eat. Many of us live only to eat, and thus we destroy the health of our body and the health of our soul at the same time. In large part, physical disease and illness are caused by the vice of gluttony. But the worst is that of intemperance in eating and drinking. This is often the catalyst of impurity. Cassius writes that it is impossible that a man who is satiated with food and, and alcohol, they're talking when we say drink, should not feel any impure temptations. We must eat to preserve our life. We must eat like rational beings, not like brutes. Especially if we desire to be free from impure temptation. Let us abstain from overeating and from overdrinking. Actually, wild animals don't overeat. They eat until the, the need ceases like the lion or the tiger, whatever, and then they don't eat. 
Much wine makes us lose our reason and involves not only the vice of drunkenness, which is certainly a mortal sin, but also the vice of impurity. As Roman Catholics, we should thank Holy Mother the Church for requiring us to fast and abstain on certain days and occasions and seasons. In the early days of the church, the fast was much more strict and severe compared to the weak fast we make today. And with that weak fast and accomplishing it, we consider ourselves heroes, conquering heroes. Fourthly and lastly here, we must mortify our hearing and our touch. The hearing by avoiding listening to immodest and scandalous conversations and music, by touch, by using all possible caution, as well in regards to others as in regards to ourselves. Some people will say, oh, it's nothing, it's just a joke. Do we play with fire? Do we burn ourselves? Was on a, I think it was Southwest, is either Southwest or Spirit, which I do not enjoy flying, because they're all comedians. Uh, one lady got on the intercom and she started using words which sounded very much like impure words. This lady was about 50 years old. She thought she was funny, she thought she was cute. And I had about 10 or 15 minutes left in the flight and I was sitting there and I felt I have to say something to this lady. So it gave me time, I'm rather slow. It gave me time to think of what to say. And she was standing just out off the aisle as we were leaving. And I turned to her as we were leaving, I said, when you talk like that, you cheapen yourself. I thought that was pretty good, actually. It, it got across that what, was not pleased with what she said and was kind of insulting, but not to the point that it should, uh, she should be angry at me. She saw that I tried to say it in a kind way, that you cheapen yourself. And hopefully she hasn't done so since. I've not seen her and I hope not to. I'd like for you now to turn your attention to the practice of charity. He who loves God loves his neighbor also. But he who does not love his neighbor does not love God. For the divine precept says that he who loves God loves also his brother. We must love God in our hearts. We must love God in our deeds. And how much must we love our neighbor? Well, we must love our Lord and God with our whole heart and soul. And we must love our neighbor as ourselves. That's quite a bit for some of us, all of us perhaps. We must therefore love God above all things and more than ourselves and our neighbors as ourselves. This test, this uh, test of love was really put to a man. I gave it as an Easter sermon about 30 years ago that the communists had come in, taken his children, and were going to kill his children if he did not deny the faith. He would not deny the faith, and he rescued his children at the same time. We must love our neighbors ourselves, so that as we desire our own good, 
We take delight when we have achieved a certain good. So must we also desire our neighbor's good. So must we also rejoice when they have done something good and worthy. And we must also be sorry for our neighbor's misfortune when something is taken from them or goes wrong or is destroyed or whatever the case may be. We must neither judge nor suspect evil of our neighbors. As to words, first we must abstain from the least shadow of detraction. What does scripture say of the detractor? Do you remember? It says a detractor is hateful to God and to man. On the contrary, he who speaks well of everyone is beloved by God, is beloved by men. And when the fault cannot be excused, we can still and must excuse the intention to which the person acted or which guided his action. Secondly, we must be careful not to repeat to anyone evil which has been said of him. Because sometimes long enmities and revenge arises. Now, that's not saying that, oh, you heard that your best friend had done this, and you know it's not true, therefore you go to tell him, this is being said about you so that you know to protect yourself. I know it's not true. I know that. It's, that's not the case. It's not the case when there is a proportion, proportionate reason to reveal the faults of another. Okay? It is not wrong for a state, for a county, to reveal that so-and-so has committed sins against nature or against chastity, when there's kids and schools around and things, that's not wrong. There's a proportionate reason for revealing the hidden faults of others. But that reason has to be proportionate. We have to make sure it is. The scripture says that he who sows discord is hated by God. Thirdly, we must take care not to wound our neighbor by saying anything which may hurt him or her, even in jest. Would you like to be laughed at in the same way as you laugh at your neighbors? Husbands, you have to be very careful with your wives. Not even in jest do you criticize her cooking or what, how she runs a house. Be very careful. Fourthly, we must avoid disputes. Sometimes disputes arise from mere trifles, quarrels. And they end in abuse, and they end in rancor. It just gets ratcheted up, higher and higher. We have also to guard against the spirit of contradiction, which some indulge when they gratuitously set themselves up as the judge of everyone and everything, and they contradict everything. On such occasions and with such individuals, if it's necessary to make known your opinion, if you are invited to make known your opinion, make known your opinion and then be quiet. You've said your piece. They know what it is. Simply because they're going to continue arguing until they get the last word. You might as well cut it short. Fifthly, we must speak gently to all, even to inferiors. Let us not make use of abusive speech to our spouses. 
to our children, to our students. When our neighbor is angry with us, answer him back mildly, and the anger will come to an end. A beautiful axiom I'm about to say, a mild answer breaks wrath. And it's so true, it's so true. When we are annoyed by our neighbor, we must be careful to say nothing because our passions will make them go, make us go too far. It may make us exaggerate and thereafter regret our reaction. St. Francis de Sales says, I was never angry in my life that I did not repent of it shortly afterwards. The rule is to be silent as long as we feel ourselves disturbed. And when our neighbor continues to be irritated or irritating, let us reserve the correction until another time. We may have the obligation of correction. But, th but three words I use in the confessional when someone asks me if they had an obligation to correct somebody, I ask, my, I ask myself and I ask them, is there well-founded hope that your correction will take make good. If there's well-founded hope, you have an obligation to do it. If there is no well-founded hope, you don't have the obligation to do so. Or at least it can be put off and should be put off to another time. Even if it's a necessary necessity that we correct somebody. Because for the moment, our words will have no effect. For good, at least. They will not convince. They will not make good. That's actually the end of this conference. Kind of came to an abrupt end there. Uh, our next conference will take place in a short while. That'll be my last conference with you to be on the practice of conformity to the will of God. Something that we all have to work on. Uh, one of the ladies in their uh, assessments said something that I've never seen on an assessment before. This retreat gave me everything that I needed, she said. It addressed all the questions I had in the spiritual life between the conferences Father Jenkins has given and the conference that I've given. Your next conference is at uh, 11.15. If you please go into the chapel and to make a some resolutions in your life, small resolutions that you can and will faithfully observe. Thank Almighty God and ask Him to enlighten you as to the words that were given in this conference. God love you and God bless you.